Um, well, I guess it's afternoon. I can say good afternoon now. Um, <laughs> thanks for, for joining us and for, for Lehigh and, and the other uh, folks joining us at a distance. Can you, can you hear us okay? Oh, good, good. Well, I'm, uh, as uh, Sue said, I'm Rick Shear. I'm the director of uh, World Campus Learning Design. And first thing I need to do is I really need to thank uh, Eleanor and Lynn and Andrea and Penny for putting all the time and effort putting this uh, together for us. They uh, did a marvelous job in, in putting the presentation together. Um, and just quickly, since I get to the introductions and I get to sit down, so. Uh, <laughs> What we're going to try and cover today, um, give you a feel of, of kind of an overview of the unit, how we're structured, um, describe in, in some detail uh, what instructional designers do, um, their backgrounds, their educations, what they think about um, related to their jobs. <laughs> um, highlight some of the things, some of the challenges and solutions, and when I say challenges, it's challenges around course designs and where we're trying to determine different pedagogical ways to approach um, uh, different aspects of a course to meet certain learning objectives, depending on uh, when we're working with the faculty and what we're trying to do and what they feel is important for the students to walk away with from the course. Um, then we're going to uh, share, they're going to share several key things that we've developed in various courses, give you kind of a feel for how we've approached from different things. And at the end, um, we'll be available to, to answer questions uh, that you may have. So that's kind of the, the afternoon, the, the next uh, hour and a half in a nutshell. Um, just quickly, as, as a quick overview of where we fit within the organization, this slide, which um, hopefully it's showing up at the remote sites, is, is a blue. It's, it's blue in the middle and then, and then gray. Um, I referred to it as the big sunflower um, <laughs> when I saw it, but it's really uh, to kind of give you an idea, and this is, this is from our perspective, in that we, our world is impacted by all these others. Nothing we do is in isolation. Everything we do is impacted by, by university systems, by academic colleges, the partners in our academic colleges we work with, by uh, department heads, faculty, um, central admin, courses at PPNM, uh, which is Program Planning and Management part of the World Campus, uh, that when they are working on agreements with the academic units of which programs and courses. So all of this impacts our world and how we, and how we work. So we're, we're constantly in touch with all these different, um, not necessarily the president and the provost, but we put them in there because overall they impact what they, we all do. Um, so kind of that's, that's just a broad from our perspective. And then looking more, more focused within, within uh, the world campus, and this is not to say that we're at the center of the world campus, but again, this is our presentation, so. Um, <laughs> it's meant to be looking at it from our perspective again. Um, everything we do is impacted by all these other units, and we work very closely with all these other units in the world campus to make sure, I mean, the end goal is to make sure that the students have the best learning experience they can. So we're in contact with the help desk, we're in contact with the registrar's office, like I said, PPNM advising student services, 
the, the folks that are on the phone with the, we recognize what we do has a big impact on a lot of other units in, uh, that are the forward facing units to the students. Um, we're kind of one step removed. We don't necessarily interface directly with the students. We interface a lot with faculty and other departments. So again, um, just kind of set the stage and our thinking in that everything that, that we do and think about is, is focused on really the student and if we integrate a new technology, what that, is that impact on the help desk? What are advising maybe going to have to talk to students about? So we're always talking to people and thinking about what those, what um, the ramifications of things that we put in our courses may have. So that's just kind of a brief, real brief overview of, of what folks are going to um, talk about today, kind of our, our structure. Uh, how things, uh, how we fit into the overall organization. And I'm going to turn it over to Andrea to go. Would you like me to forward you? Sure. <laughs> so I'm Andrea Gregg, one of the senior instructional designers in the unit. And we'll talk in a minute about how we're actually broken down by teams. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to talk about We've talked about how World Campus and Outreach are situated within the university and how learning design is situated within World Campus itself. And now we wanted to kind of zoom in and focus on learning design in terms of overall functions, mission, et cetera. And in a nutshell, the learning design unit creates innovative courses that are student-centered and pedagogically sound. We research new technologies to provide students with a successful learning experience and faculty with a successful teaching experience. So at the end of the day, our product, in terms of if you were to look at us as a production shop, are courses that are offered to World Campus students. We're, we'll talk some about some other areas that we'll plug into, but a lot of what we'll focus on are the online courses that have been the majority of our focus. In terms of areas and of expertise and overall themes that you'll hear each of us refer to or allude to throughout the presentation. And these are not in any particular order, so I'll just touch upon each and kind of explain how it impacts our work and what we do with it. Media and interactivity, and this is kind of the hot topic that you'll hear about in terms of visualization of content, student interactivity, all of that. One of the important things to mention here, and you'll see examples of media and interactivity throughout some of our course examples, is that Whenever we incorporate these things, it's always with the, the focus on the learner. So is this something that would enhance the course? Will this help them understand the content better? Will it help them learn the material better, etc.? So we never include media just for the sake of including media. And um, it's just a theme that y'all can hear us refer to throughout. Educational technology related topic, there are a number of tools out there Often daily we'll get multiple emails of check this out, would this be useful in a math class? Would this be useful for public speaking? Have you looked at this for chemistry? So we're always exploring new technologies that may enable us to do things better, do things differently, do things in a way that works better for the students and makes a better teaching experience for the faculty. System integration, as Rick talked about in terms of the initial slide, we live within the university, so a number of systems that we use and that our students use are university-driven. ANGEL is the prime example of that. 
ANGEL is the university learning management system, and it's the learning management system that all the World Campus courses run through. So a large part of what we do is work with those systems, again, to make sure they're adult student friendly and distance student friendly. <coughs> Accessibility and usability. Accessibility is typically discussed in terms of ADA requirements. With We've had cases in the past few semesters where we've had students who are hard of hearing and students who have sight disabilities. And we've used assistive technologies in both of those cases to make sure that the students could get through the course achieving the same learning objectives, whether it was having a transcription for a hard of hearing student in an interactive Illuminate Live session, or um, working with a screen reader in one of our IMBA courses for a student who had sight issues. Usability, related but different, usability <coughs> pertains to the ease of use of tools. So this applies um, across the board when we, kind of going back to the educational technology or looking at something, one of the first questions we always ask is, is this going to be easy to learn? Will our students be able to get this? Will, is it something that's worth the learning curve? If it takes a half an hour to learn, is that half an hour is the benefit of that tool going to make it worth the half an hour that it takes to learn? So we're constantly thinking about usability from the student perspective. Research and innovation, and we'll talk a lot more about research later in terms of some specific areas that we're focused on right now, but this, again, is a theme that kind of goes through everything we do. Andragogy and pedagogy. Pedagogy is the much more common term in terms of related to learning theory and how people learn. We also emphasize that we rarely actually use this word, but I thought it was important to include both technical terms, uh, andragogy, which is a focus on learning practices for adults. So there are, is a lot of research on how adults tend to and prefer to learn differently than children, and some of those things are um, the use of experience, the fact that they have a lot of knowledge already from work experience. So a lot of times in courses, there'll be discussion forums where they're able to share work slash life experience in the context of the content that they're learning. Another thing that is important with adults across the board is make it relevant. So probably the cliched way that you'll hear of this is they want to use at work on Wednesday what they learned in class on Tuesday. And while all of our courses are not um, quite that direct. That's definitely something that we think about when we're designing. Student-centered instructional design. And this, again, is something <clears throat> that we'll emphasize. When we work on our courses, we don't design them to impress other units. We don't design them to have the latest technology. We design them to um, focus on the students that they're being offered to. And our target student is an adult student at a distance taking the course online. They don't have we assume no access to campus. We assume no access to local bookstores. We assume um, all sorts of things in terms of not being located at a, at a physical campus. And then collaborative development. We'll talk some about the way our unit is structured in teams. We work um, internally in teams. As Rick pointed out in the slide of kind of where learning or how learning design is situated in World Campus among a number of different units and functions. Um, we work very closely with the outreach help desk. So anytime we incorporate a new technology, they're very involved in making sure 
they can support it, making sure they know it's there, because they're the ones kind of the front line with students in terms of answering questions, et cetera. Um, we also work with faculty very, very closely. And one thing that we say a lot of times is at the end of the day, it's the faculty's course. We're there to help, we're there to design, we're there to offer suggestions, we're there to offer best practices, but the design really is a collaboration between the designer, the other staff, and the faculty. And this is just a quick testimonial. This is Dr. Hade. He's one of our faculty who's worked with us for a number of years. He is the lead faculty on our Master of Education and Curriculum Instruction, emphasis on children's literature. My overall experience with learning design at the Penn State uh, World Campus has been terrific. The people are very skilled, very knowledgeable, very dedicated to, uh, to their work and to uh, producing a high quality product. The learning design people understand that not only is the World Campus about content, but it's also about service. And some, some interesting things about Dr. Hay, um, He's worked with us at all levels. So the very first course he designed with us was a picture book course. And this is probably five or six years ago. I was the designer on that course. And we spent a ton of time working on clearing copyright for images that went in the course. So he's been involved, Kathy remembers that, because she was calling publishers left and right. Um, so when he talks about what he's talking about isn't just kind of high level discussion about learning objectives, though that was crucial too. but we get into the nitty gritty of how do we offer this course. So in his course, face-to-face -face course, he would come in with a ton of picture books, lay them out, pass them around. So then in converting that or being able to do that online, he had to work with all sorts of headaches. I mean, he at one point was taking pictures of the books to enable us to show them. So he's, he's a very good example because he's really worked with us at all levels from start to finish of multiple courses and then seeing them offered and seen them through. This is just a quick overview of our unit structure. Uh, we're organized in teams, sort of arbitrarily by color. There's no meaning, well, except Lynn loves red, and we thought the ed tech guy should have something cool, so we, they became the titanium team. Uh, I'll talk through a little bit. We tried to highlight some of the elements of the portfolio. There's a lot of overlap. so. Something may show up on one team, but absolutely other people have been involved or work on the project. We just tried to give each major project a home. So in terms of the red team, the programs that are currently on their portfolio, and the, the handouts you guys have, um, this file ended up being huge, so it doesn't have all the builds. So a lot of the internal animation you won't see, but just got the main slides. But they are, um, on, within their portfolios, the IMBA program, and typically, or the red team has a lot of the business programs. So the Bachelor of Science in Business, Master of Professional Studies in Homeland Security, Bachelor of Science in IST, Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice, Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, Master of Project Management, and then two initiatives that Lynn and the Red Team are very involved in is the Blended Learning Initiative, which is Rail Campus and the university as a whole, and then the Video Learning Network. And you'll also see the Video Learning Network show up 
um, on the titanium team. So as I said, there's a lot of overlap, but these are just to kind of highlight some areas of the portfolio. And then the blue team until recently was predominantly education programs, but some things have shifted around. So we have the Master of Professional Studies in Human Resources and Employment Relations, uh, SPLED, which includes three special education certificates. So the certificate, certificate in Reading Instruction for Special Education, Certificate Programs in Applied Behavioral Analysis, Certificate in Autism, the blue team also handles a lot of the continuing education portfolio. So as World Campus evolves, as outreach evolves, we get involved in more and more uh, types of things. So a number of our courses that are offered face-to-face -face or offered blended, we're now having increasing responsibility for in terms of helping with development. Uh, Master of Education in Adult Education, Bachelor of Science in Nursing, which is the RN to BS. HRIM, which has uh, two certificates under, or two components under that, the Associates in Science, Hotel, Restaurant, and Institutional Management, and then the HRIM certificate. And then lastly, the blue team has been very involved in Illuminate Live, which is a web conferencing system that World Campus is now contracted with. Um, it's used in a lot of our courses. Anytime there's interactivity that happens through <clears throat> audio, video, etc. And Eleanor will talk a little about that in one of the courses that utilizes it. The green team, um, we have the a bulk of the general undergraduate portfolio and these are uh, courses out of um, each of these colleges. We have liberal arts, college of communication, science, health and human development, agriculture, and education. We also have the Master of Education and in Instructional Systems, which the emphasis in educational technology, Master of Public Administration, Master of Education in Curriculum and Instruction, Children's Literature, and that's Dr. Hayes' program, Master of Education and Educational Leadership, and then the Criterion Committee. This is another third-party company that we work with extensively and provide a lot of services. Criterion is our uh, online proctoring, which will highlight later. And then the titanium team, and Jamie, who's actually the manager of this team, is right there if anyone's interested. He didn't have to stand up front, but I thought I would give him credit since he's standing right there. Um, Jamie's got a lot on his plate and on his team's plate. Um, the Quick Base Evolution Course Environment System. So we've talked about the first three teams where the portfolios of courses and programs that we offer, we can't offer them without having the platform to do that. And that's what Jamie's team spends a lot of time and work on is enabling us to be able to offer courses, multiple courses with multiple sections, multiple instructors every semester. And there's a whole lot of work that goes behind that. They also handle the multimedia production and audio and video production, which then gets integrated into the courses. They're responsible for the learning design website. Um, accessibility, usability, research and implementation. So we have staff dedicated to those topics. Equella, which is an object repository, which enables us to store all the individual objects. And it's also being looked at by the reusable content committee, which is larger than just World Canvas at this point. Jamie's also very, very involved with the video learning network. Um, all course-related technology coordination with the university. So as I said in the beginning, university uses Angel, we use Angel. 
there's still a ton of integration that has to happen with that in terms of um, reporting bugs, reporting enhancement requests, dealing with upgrades, etc. All desktop support for learning design, and then ongoing IT support of all World Campus courses. So student calls typically go to the help desk and then come back up to Jamie's team in terms of anything that might need to be fixed or maintained, etc. And then lastly, since I pointed out Jamie, I better point out Kathy. Kathy Highball, <laughs> leader of the yellow team. And this is our quality assurance team. And this is fairly recently formed as we get more and more courses with more and more sections. Quality assurance, having an organized function for that became increasingly important. And their main responsibilities are copyright clearance, um, which applies to anything we're including in a course that in the classroom a faculty might use without even thinking about. So images, video, audio, text, et cetera. She's and her team are very involved in that. Intellectual property agreement management. So uh, when faculty author a course, the fact that World Campus is able to offer it multiple semesters or offer it with different people teaching it, um, they're very involved in that. Materials coordination and procurement, working with um, <coughs> the various textbook publishers and other sources that provide materials. Course, course quality assurance, so going through all courses from making sure links work to making sure exam information is correct, all of that. Liaison with textbook publishers. And then coordination of GRS 3 and 4 courses. <coughs> so what we're focusing on right now are the courses that we design and develop. There are also a set of courses that other colleges are designing and developing and World Campus is offering. There's still a chunk of work that our unit does to make sure that that works smoothly. So then to transition to what does an instructional designer do? And there are two major reasons we've decided to focus on this a little bit. And the first one is it's, we get the most questions about it. So what is an instructional designer? What does that mean? What does an instructional designer do? There's a lot more mystery surrounding this than, say, a web programmer or um, a database programmer. So we thought we'd spend a little bit of time on this. But second and more seriously, this is the function that our entire unit is built around. So we talked about the fact that we are um, ultimately producing or enabling these online courses. And instructional design, the relationship between the faculty member and the designer and the rest of the team to produce the courses really is the central function of our unit. And it's just a quick kind of definition or focus. Our instructional designers have a passion for helping faculty create and offer the best online learning experience for their students. We partner with faculty to actively solve design issues and implement solutions that meet the learning goals of the course. Instructional design is a specialized profession and our designers hold advanced degrees in fields like instructional technology, instructional systems, and adult education. In terms of what an instructional designer actually does, and we'll look at some very specific tasks related to courses and other learning experiences that we might be charged with helping to create. So starting from the high, high level, and this is typically where we start. So when you look at the end product and even what we're going to show you today, your attention is going to be drawn to the technology or how we use this tool to solve this problem. But before we get to any of that, before we start thinking about technology, we really start with these very high level questions of 
Who's the audience for this course? What do they already know? And then what are the goals of the course? So at the end of this 15-week semester, what's the intention that the students learn, walk away with, are able to do? So we start with that before getting into anything else. Um, and then in terms of the actual kind of design and development, that's sort of the analysis, the actual design and development, there are a number of areas. We look at existing materials. A lot of courses we offer have already been offered in residence. So we look at existing syllabi, existing assignments, all of that to see what will work in the online format. We <clears throat> look at the activities that are done, interactions between students, interactions with the faculty and the students, interactions between students and content, and then assessments. How is learning assessed um, as they're going throughout the course? How are they assessed both to determine if they're learning and also for grades? And then we produce the online content in that regard. And then um, supporting all of that and ending up being central to making sure all these things can happen is the multimedia and the supporting technology. And then lastly, make sure everything runs through quality assurance that everything works correctly. So I will switch gears and let Eleanor take over. Okay, thank you. Um, as Rick introduced me, I'm Eleanor Lehman and I'm the head of the blue team, the design team. I wanted to be the black team and have him call me the Johnny Cash team, but he wouldn't go for it, so we're the blue team. Um, one of our challenges as instructional designers is how do we take something that was done in a face-to-face -face course and migrate it into the online environment? And we do this by designing the right activity using the most appropriate technology to meet the intended learning outcome. So Lynn and I are both going to go through some examples of these challenges that we faced and the solutions that we designed to solve those problems. Our first challenge. Um, in any online course, our primary objective as designers in the first week of the actual course is to help students connect with each other and this is vital to the success of the course because these will be people that will never meet face to face so how do we build that student community um, we've done that a number of ways we've done things like asking them to post introductions to a message board or we ask them to fill out a simple form that we post online that creates a simple home page um, but we've taken this a step further now with the capabilities of Google Maps anybody familiar with Google Maps Okay, Christina definitely is from the group maps. What we've done is we've created um, a simple survey. This is basically a Google form that a student will fill out. And I don't know if you can see this in the back, but we collect basic information on them. So every student tells us who they are, tells us what their position or title is, gives a bit of information about themselves, where they're from, what they're looking for to get out of this class, those types of things, and then the country um, where they live or the state where they live within the country. We then basically have them submit that, we compile all of the information, and we generate this Google map. Um, and what this is nice is the fact that it kind of provides the visual version of those student homepages. It visually lets your classmates know where everybody is in the class, and if you roll over one of those pins, it will actually display that person's personal information. So you have a more visual way of getting students to connect with each other, and that helps them connect outside of the course content and it helps to build that student um, community. So this is an example of a way we took one of the newer, relatively newer technologies and incorporated it into one of our learning objectives. Oh, this one's a great one. 
proctored exams. This one we wrestled with for about, uh, we've been wrestling with this one since I started 10 years ago. So you can tell this has been kind of the monkey on our back. Um, how do you ensure that the student who's taking the exam is the one who signed up for the course when you never see them? Initially, what we used to do is we had all of our exams as paper-based exams. So what this meant was you as the student had to go out and find a proctor, you had to find somebody that would sit with you during the test, and that person had to meet certain requirements that we put forth. They couldn't just be your uncle, they couldn't just be your brother. So you had to go out and find the proctor, you might have to pay for the proctor services, and you'd have to coordinate the time and location of when you took the test. This also was extreme uh, amount of administrative work for World Campus, student services, would get the exams, they would mail them to your proctor, you would take the test, your proctor would mail them back to student services, student services would compile them all, send them off to your faculty member, your faculty member would grade them, and hopefully at some point five weeks later, they would give you their feedback. So you'd get your grade and you'd get any comments that they had. So as you can imagine, the delay in you taking the exam and you getting your score and any feedback was significant. So. We had situations where you might have taken one exam, still not received a grade for that exam, and we're now taking your second exam and probably repeating the mistakes that you'd already made on the first one. So that didn't work, obviously. Um, when we started to move courses into ANGEL, which, as Andrea mentioned, was our learning system, they had a quizzing tool. So we basically migrated the paper exams online into a quiz. Um, this was great, except for you still had to find a proctor who would sit with you, and now the proctor had to have access to a computer in a room that was relatively quiet where you could take your exam and the computer had to be hooked to the internet. So we still hadn't, although the results came back too faster, we still hadn't kind of resolved the issue of you having to go out and find a proctor. To make matters worse, um, the whole area of exam integrity has just gone absolutely explosive. Um, you have companies who are set up whose sole purpose is specifically to have students upload exams that they've taken and provide them to other students for a purchase to download and then basically copy from. So here's an example of a company that does that, and Andrea actually went online and was able to find one of the courses that is taught through Penn State, and here's their final exam in case you ever take Math 140. Um, and these companies keep popping up. Here's another one that has arrived on the scene. So we had to really find a way that we could ensure the person taking the exam was taking the exam and was the one who registered for the course. So about two years ago, I guess it was about two, we learned of a company that was building a product that would allow students to take secure online exams with proctors who sat at a distance over a web camera. And we partnered with that company. The company's name is Criterion, as we mentioned. Because they were in development, we were able to kind of work with them from the start and kind of shape the product in terms of what we needed it to do. So we developed, we had a design team that kind of developed the product along with them. And Basically what happens is, this is a picture of the web camera that we have students purchase. Here's the web camera that you'll purchase as a student. It costs about 40 bucks, and it includes video capability, and it also includes audio capability. And it's pretty slick because it's just plug and play. It doesn't require drivers, those types of things. So you as a student, when you register for a course that has an exam, we ask you to verify who you are at registration. And you do this through two ways. The first way is through keystroke analytics. So you sit down type your password in about seven to ten times. And while you're typing that repeatedly, the system is basically creating a typing pattern for you. So the way you enter your keys, the way you hit the keys, kind of the rhythm that you use is being captured. 
And the company actually has found that this is one method that's almost impossible for anybody else to mimic. So if somebody else tried to sit down and enter your password, they're probably not going to hit the right pattern at the right time. So that's the one thing that they do. The next thing that you register is a picture of yourself, obviously. So you sit down, you hit your camera, it takes a picture of you, and it uploads it to their website. Now when it comes time for you to actually take your exam, you're going to re-verify your keystroke, you're going to re-verify your photo. But at this point, there's a proctor who's probably sitting in Phoenix, Arizona, who's actually watching you take your test. And here's what they see. So they see the student, they see their keyboard, they can see kind of their desk area. And they also can hear. Remember, they have a microphone on that little, that little um, camera. If at any time they detect any aberrant test behavior, like let's say they hear somebody's voice in the room with you reading off answers, or they see you opening textbooks and going through and finding answers, they'll stop the test. And they'll ask you to either clear the room out or put your books away, and then they'll continue the test. If at the end it's decided that there's something that's <coughs> suspicious, they actually don't make the call. They will provide a recording of your session to your faculty member who will then review it and make a decision on whether to honor the test or have you retake or fail you on the test. So this has really allowed us to kind of take away the burden of exams from students, and it's also allowed us to give immediate feedback to students, which were two of the things that were just dogging us for many years. So that's kind of a thing that has saved us recently. Um, here's another challenge that we faced, and this is with math courses. As you probably remember in math courses, many of the things you had to do involved going up to a chalkboard, writing out a problem, solving the problem, having the teacher stand behind you and give you kind of that corrective feedback. Well, we couldn't necessarily do that in an online course with the technology that was available. So some of our early attempts at math homework would be you would complete your homework on paper, you would fax it to your faculty member, your faculty member would correct it, and then fax it back to you. That obviously doesn't give you kind of that immediately, immediate feedback that lets you kind of talk through problems and solutions. So we came up with, when the technology became available, we came up with this one solution. We've got a number of dis different solutions, but this is one of the ones that we've used. In this corner, you'll see something called a bamboo tablet, and we have an example of one. And if you want to play around with it later, we can hook it up for you. Basically what it lets you do is it lets you connect it to a computer so you can actually open up Microsoft Word and you can use this like you would normally a pen, you can draw on this and it will actually translate what you've drawn into the software application. So we've connected this into this which is Illuminate Live. This is what Andrea described as our web conferencing software and what this will let you do is you can upload anything to the whiteboard so you can upload math problems. And then you can actually draw on the bamboo tablet, and you can actually show how you're writing or you're solving problems. In addition to this, there's a video and audio capability, so you can actually hear the person as they're writing. So we've got actually an example of Jamie, who's the student, and Janet, who's the instructor, going through an actual problem. I know it's tough to hear, but you can at least get the gist of kind of how they work back and forth, how you could see it synchronously happening, which kind of removes that barrier of the sending paper back and forth. 
Our next challenges was kind of similar to the, to the math challenge. Introductory chemistry, where you had to perform lab experiments. Um, we really had a challenge in how do you get students to experience that lab idea from their own home, um, knowing that things could get blown up on a regular basis. So um, what we've done is we've captured the instructor performing labs that really need to be performed in the safety of a, an actual lab by a trained professional. So we've kind of demonstrated examples of labs to students through video, and then we give students a chance to, to actually complete labs at home through kind of more of a safer experiment environment. The first um, video I'll show you is of our instructor, and she is demonstrating a flame test experiment where she's showing how metallic ions emit different colors when they vaporize from the burner flame. I don't know what that means, but that's what you're saying, that looks. It means it's dangerous. It's, yeah, don't do this at all. Next, we're going to look at the copper 2 plus ion. So that gave the student an idea of not only procedures of how to complete lab experiments, but also kind of what they should be looking for. They then, this is kind of a picture of one of our students in her kitchen doing other lab experiments. And she's using a kit that we actually provide that contains things like plastic cylinders, pipettes, petri dishes. And then we ask them to go out and purchase things you can find at your local grocery store, like iodized salt, rubbing alcohol, those types of things. So this gives them a chance to actually do labs in their home that allow them to kind of gather data, make observations, those types of things, which meet the objectives of the course. So that's another example of how we've kind of taken something that was done in face-to-face -face but made it safe for the online face-to-face -face course. Um, at this point, Lynn is going to share some of our other challenges with you. We have faced so many challenges that we had to break this session <laughs> <laughs> for people. So this really talks about user interface and how many people here are familiar with Angel? I've seen Angel. Well, this is a page right out of Angel. How many people here have heard really good things about Angel? Take a look, nobody. <laughs> nobody is raising their hands. Angel, as we said, is the course management system that the university basically forces us to use, and we get a lot of feedback, and unfortunately, a lot of times, it's negative feedback. We have issues with it. So, when we use Angel, Something that we have to do, why it's a challenge, is that we have to take Angel that we know has issues that make it somewhat not user-friendly for a lot of our students and organize it in such a way that we think it is user-friendly. Some things, then when you look at user interface, you're a lot of times looking at the look and feel. You know, how does it look? We know that it doesn't really matter how it looks. That does not affect whether you learn from it, but a lot of students have a perception as soon as they look at a page like this that looks very white with text you know they don't get excited about it oh yeah this, this is, is a course um, I'm going to show you a couple examples of how we've tried to make this better because as I said a lot of times just by the look there is a perception that there is more quality in the course even though as instructional designers we know that's not true user interface also includes the usability and the navigation the adult learners that take our courses. Most of them are working full-time, if not part-time, and it's very important for them 
that when they get into the course, they're able to find information quickly. They want to get in, do what they need to do, and get back out because they have a lot of other responsibilities. So part of the user interface is structuring the information, the assignments, drop boxes, discussion forms, all of those things in a way that makes sense so that the students can find things and find them quickly. Also, you want to make sure that you don't put the same information a lot of different places, especially related to assignments and due dates. If we have a due date in the syllabus, we put that same due date somewhere else in the course and they don't match up, then you have very unhappy students because well, which is it? And we've had students that have, because we've done that in the past, we've had students who have missed an assignment, you know, lost points for it with the faculty, we, you know, we've had the faculty call us because these are the type of things that they really rely on the instructional designer to help them with. So those are things that, that we look for with the user interface. Something that we do, this is the lessons tab in Angel. Angel is made up of, of several tabs. The lessons tab is probably the one that gets used the most because this is where the activities and assignments that the students do, this is actually where they kind of reside in the course. What we've done to try to make it easier is organized by folders. And if you look at this particular screen, you'll see we have lesson one, lesson two. So anything that's related to lesson one sits underneath that folder. So if there's a quiz for lesson one, the student would know to click on the lesson one folder to find it. If it's a Dropbox with lesson one, it will be there as well. So this is something that instructional designers do to help faculty and students to organize the information to make it much easier. And the most of our courses probably do these lessons. I mean, there are other ways to organize as well, but this is probably the most popular. Um, the only thing I'm really gonna highlight here is what things that students want says they want high quality look and feel, not cookie cutter. If you use the word cookie cutter around most designers, they're kind of, will probably bristle because nobody wants to think of their course as cookie cutter. Cookie cutter, is angel. There's not a lot you can do with it. You are very forced into it. So in order for us to get around that, we have created specialized templates. And I'm going to go through some of those right now. Um, this is one that we use. This actually still sits inside of angel. Um, I mentioned angel really has tabs. If you look at the top of this, if you can see lessons is actually highlighted. So that means that's the tab you're in in angel. The other ones that you see across the top the syllabus, calendar, um, resources, communicate, and reports. So this, this is what the student would see. This is where we actually have put our content. So by us keeping, and this is going to be confusing, but the con this content is actually not right in Angel. By not putting it right in Angel, it gives us more flexibility. We can add graphics and a much better look and feel. So this is one thing that, that we have done within Angel. Another way sorry, <laughs> that we have tried to take Angel and the course and make it more appealing to the students is creating a template where we don't have those tabs across the top. So this, you've come in, you've gone through Angel, but suddenly it looks very different. And what we've done here is if you look at the left-hand side of this, and once again, I'll read through some of it, the links, it says course homepage, syllabus, um, what's new, lessons, communicate, resources, reports, some of the same items that we saw in Angel. We could just kind of take it and flipped it 
and put them in this left-hand menu. So here's one of the content pages um, for navigation. We have the numbers and the little arrows to move back and forth, so very consistent navigation. The left-hand menu, it's always there. So if I am reading, say, this particular page, and all of a sudden I decide I want to go check the syllabus, I can check the syllabus link. I can still see the lessons, so I can still get back easily. If I'm here and I want to do an email, say I'm reading something, I think this is really great, I need to email the class about it, I can hit the communicate. What that actually does brings up a small window that I can use for my email. When I'm done, I can just get rid of my email and I can continue with the course. When I'm in Angel, I can't do that. The tabs across the top, if I go in the previous screen, if I'm in lessons and I go to communicate, everything disappears except for the email. So to get back to something like this, it takes several clicks. This is really, like I said, really just going to get rid of a window. So this makes it much easier for navigation for our students. Plus, we were able to work with an outside company to design this for us. And it made it look a pretty simple look, but this actually quite a bit of work that went into this. They actually did the design several iterations of this and then our programmers actually um, programmed this in, we mentioned evolution, which is kind of a system that we use to create courses, so that's in there. Um, another look similar to that, this is what we use for the IMBA. Um, same type of look with it, it with the left-hand menu, but you can see we've, we've used different graphics. Um, rather than the numbers across the top, it's just the previous and next for some of the navigation. Um, as I said, students, they don't want cookie cutter, but yet they do want some consistency. So we, we try to keep the navigation very consistent, we try to keep the links very consistent, and we try to keep where we store information very consistent within courses because we know that that is very important to our students. Um, an interesting thing with the IMBA, we, we had a, a template like this when years ago we were in WebCT and when we moved from WebCT to Angel it was a lot of work. So learning design at the time was instructional design and development really decided to move to this type of format. It would be much easier when we move from one system to another. When we moved into Angel, because the whole university was using Angel, um, we had a lot of pushback from other units, other groups on campus saying, you need to use ANGEL the way everybody else is because you know students, if they're taking a resident course and they've taken um, a world campus course, it's not going to look the same. So we, we, after a lot of pressure, we kind of said, okay, we tried putting courses into ANGEL. Um, the IMBA, and, and if you know anything about them, they're, they're a pretty vocal group, but they were very upset, did not like that at all. So we ended up sticking with this. Now we are kind of gravitating other programs back to this type of format because just we, we've learned so much more that probably eight years ago we had the right idea and, and we allowed ourselves to be talked out of it. So now, now we're moving back in that direction. So that's a solution how we've dealt with some of our interface issues. Public speaking. Another one that really took us quite a long time to come up with a solution for this uh, because public speaking, much like I'm doing now, you're standing up, you're in front of a, a group of people. We had no way to capture that for students at a distance. Um, 
we were on a modem, a 56K modem, which was very slow. So if you tried to do something with video or audio, it would take very long download times. The file sizes were huge. We, we really had struggled with how would we ever do this. Technology has made such a difference for us. Um, I'm not sure. How many years ago did we go broadband? Two, three, four? <laughs> three and a half. About three and a half years ago, we made the decision, no more modem. If you're going to take a World Campus course, you're going to have to have a broadband connection. That really helped us to solve this problem because then we were able to use audio and video. What we do now for this is students actually videotape themselves at home giving a speech. Is that exactly the same as experience as in a classroom? No, you know, and we know it's not because you're part of what you do when you're doing public speaking is you look at your audience. They don't have an audience to look at. They can't see, you know, if somebody's falling asleep or if somebody's using a computer, you know, they, they really have no idea. So it's not exactly the same experience, but it's it's very similar in that they are having to create a speech, they are presenting it, they are being critiqued on it. And we have a couple examples of that, and I'll show you kind of what they do. So here is one, and we have permission from these students to share their presentation, so we'll go through the first one. Good morning. Another bank goes under, another major corporation files for bankruptcy, another small business closes its doors, another family loses their home, another Wall Street tycoon cashes a multi-million dollar bonus check. Okay. There's much more to that, but essentially students would watch that from a distance and do usually some type of critique on this as well as the faculty. And here's just another example. I want you to imagine finals are over, the semester's done, and you finally have time to relax and enjoy your friends, family, loved ones. Imagine you're at a holiday gathering with them when suddenly one of them collapses. What do you do? Okay. <laughs> a cliffhanger there. What do you do? <laughs> but just to kind of show you some of the behind the scenes, how this all works, is they create the video at home. Whatever the assignment is, they, they videotape themselves. So yes, they must have a camera in order to participate in this course. We have that out in the course catalog right on the website so students know if I'm going to take this public speaking course online, I'm going to have to have a video camera, the audio capability, and those types of things. Then what they do is they upload the video into iTunes U. This is part of iTunes. And what they have done is iTunes has space for universities throughout the country and the world. Penn State has space here. So as a student, you log into the Penn State space, and, and this is what it looks like. Then you find your, your course. Um, the small text about third of the way, halfway down, says courses on iTunes U. And you would see your course there. You would click on that. It's going to take you into the space for your course. You're going to upload it. And then what you end up doing is you'll get a list of all the recordings for that particular assignment. So if I have to critique assignments as a student, I'm going to come here and I'm just going to play through all of these so that I will see everybody's videos and finish the assignment. So this has made it much easier 
for us to do public speaking. The other issue that we have, once again, file sizes are pretty big for some of these. And Angel, we only have a certain limit. We have It's a one gig of, of file space that you have. So if it gets larger than that, we have huge problems with the course in Angel. By using iTunes U, it does not affect anything in Angel. So that, that's another reason that this has actually been a very good solution for us to the public speaking. And the last thing I'm going to talk about are demonstrations. Um, we have a lot of faculty that come to us, because usually when we start with them, we really try to see what are they doing in the classroom. Because as Andrea said, most of them have already taught, and it's a course that's already on campus or being taught somewhere throughout the university. So you really sit down and talk to them, well, what do you do in the classroom? In this particular example, we had a faculty who said, well, it's a BA 321, which is a contemporary business skills course. And, and she said, well, one of the first things I do is really talk to them about how to set priorities. And I always do this demonstration called the, the Jar of Rocks. And, and you probably may have heard of this because it is something that, that's fairly popular. It's not something that she thought of herself. And basically, she said, well, and, and it's not what you see in the graphics. <laughs> but she said she brings in a big jar. She brings in rocks, she brings in water, she brings in sand. So all of these materials that she has to carry to the classroom. And then she goes about the demonstration. And she felt that it was very good, though, for starting out the course and wanted to try to use it somehow in the online course. So we said, well, let's try to create a flash animation. Because on the uh, titanium team, we have several multimedia people, and, and that's some of the work that, that they do. So we really worked with the faculty, with the multi, one of the multimedia specialists, to create this animation. First thing that we did, because we knew it was something that was, was popular, is we actually just, we did a search for it. Maybe it's already out there on the web. Maybe it's something we can use. We don't need to spend the time creating it. We, we did find a couple of animations, weren't exactly what we wanted, but it gave us a place to start. So what happened is, and I, I happen to be the designer on that, course, so I would work with the multimedia specialist, and he would put something together, and I would say as much as I could, yes, that looks good, no, it doesn't, so there was a lot of going back and forth, and at certain intervals, then I would go back to the faculty to get their input, and I'm going to show you what we ended up with, the solution for the demonstration. <coughs> This one we had to do in browser window, so that's why we're <coughs> And this is exactly as a student in the course, you're sitting here by yourself, you would read this, you're sitting in the classroom, the instructor just walked in, and you click on next to begin. We're going to add some big rocks to the jar. Is the jar full? What do you think? 
Most people look like they're shaking their heads, so I'll say no. And that's correct, it's not, so we continue. At this point, we're adding some small rocks. Is the jar full? Most people are saying no. I'm just going to say yes, because it looks full to me. <laughs> so. so then we find out, well, no, you can add more to the jar, so I'm going to click to continue. We can add sand to the jar. Is it full? Most people know. I know. I well, jar's not full. We're going to continue. At this point, we are going to add some, some water to the jar. Is it full now? Yes. So correct. And then we have a little explanation as to you know why we did this. And basically, it's just showing you, you for the priorities, you need to kind of start with the big rocks first because if you put the water in and then plop in the big rock, you're going to have a, a big mess. The interesting thing that I found out about this particular animation is the instructor now uses this in the classroom because she said it saves her all the trouble of bringing in the big jar, the rocks, the water, the sand. She said it's much easier. All I do is display this and go through it out of the course. So I said that, that was actually very encouraging to hear that something that we did in the online course has now transferred to the classroom as well. Get back to the slideshow. Okay. And I'm going to turn this back to Andrea. Okay, well, switching gears from some of the applied stuff, we'll take a step back and kind of look at some bigger picture questions. One of the things we said in the beginning and one of the things that should be clear throughout all of the examples is that we're constantly looking and trying to find new solutions or new things that um, might be able to be used in a future course. So for the 2010-2011 year, our unit has formed three different research teams. and. The research teams have been tasked with um, looking at one of these three topics. So one team is mobile learning, one is social networking, and one is game simulations of virtual worlds. And each team is tasked with doing a literature review of the tools, technologies, research related to that topic, piloting the technology in a course, and then writing a white paper assessing its instructional applications and effectiveness. So <clears throat> one important thing to say about this is they're not researching if these things are important. They're not researching if we should use these things in our personal or professional lives. We've got gamers on our staff, except for Rick. Everyone has a Facebook account. <laughs> and almost everyone has a smartphone. So it's not about whether or not we think these things are cool, important, useful, etc. It's whether or not we think, given everything we've talked to up to this point, these things have instructional applications where the learning curve, <coughs> the expense, the accessibility, the usability, all of that makes it um, useful for the benefit that could possibly be gained. So what these research teams are doing is basically asking those questions. How are these things used? How have they been used in other universities? What do we know about how they're used, cost, 
one of the things that we're often being uh, challenged by is browsers and platforms. So we've got some software that's PC only. We just discovered a software application the other day that's Mac only. We can't require our students have a Mac or have a PC. So we're always thinking in that regard. Similarly, with mobile learning, there are a ton of different smartphones out there. And if you're going to write an application for a mobile device, you're going to write a different application for an iPhone versus a Blackberry versus a Droid. So one of the things to think about is, yeah, it may be really cool to have an app on a phone, but are you going to require that all of your students get an iPhone? Probably not. So we are still thinking very much in terms of optional value add rather than requirement. Um, and one example of that, this is just a pilot that we did. This is a mobile learning pilot. It was in one of the, actually a few of the special education courses. And these are flashcards. They're available online and they're also available for an iPhone or an iPod touch. So it's probably a little hard to read this from the back, but it says the relationship between an unconditioned stimulus and an unconditioned response. So that's the question. Does anyone know the answer? <laughs> Any no. instructional. <laughs> so it's a reflex. And the <clears throat> feedback they got from this was they found it useful, they found it added to the course, and they wanted more flashcards actually. So they wanted something like this they could interact with that covered a lot of the topics throughout the course. Um, the other areas, social media. Again, well, why don't you use Facebook in your course? Why don't you use Twitter in your course, et cetera? Some of the research shows that students perceive when their instructors are now in Facebook or requiring them to join a Facebook group, that it's kind of like your instructor has shown up in your house and sits on the couch to watch TV with you. Like Facebook is your space, it's personal, and when the course intrudes on that, that it's not seen as, oh, hey, this professor's really been cool. It's seen as, why are you in my personal space? So those are a lot of the things that come up with social networking. And then game simulations and virtual world. So this is a clip from Second Life, which has a ton of instructional applications and a really, really high learning curve. So we're always balancing those things. Um, we have people in the unit who are technology people who have accounts and are still in Orientation Island. So it's not something that you just jump into, know how to use, and can immediately participate in class activities. So those are a lot of the things that people are looking to. And I will turn this over to Penny, who's actually got some real world research that she's currently conducting. Okay, thanks. Um, as Andrew said, I'm Penny Ralstenberg. I am an instructional designer on the green team. Go green. <laughs> and um, yeah. and uh, before, before we get into the specifics of the study, I want to tell you where it came from. So before I was an instructional designer, I was a returning adult student and completed my master's degree partially at a distance. I've been on the receiving end of many different types of distance learning. Um, some good, some not so good. And so I will say that um, nothing impacts my work as a designer as much as that experience as a student. So when we talk about student-centered learning, student-centered design, I'm constantly trying to see things from the student point of view to help us improve the courses. So from that perspective, uh, when I 
read things. There's a lot of stuff around right now about quality, quality of online courses, what makes a quality online course. And, you know, I keep up to date on that. I read it and go to other people's presentations and all that. But whenever I hear something about what a course should be or could be or what media should be in a course, I, I always um, raise the question in my own mind, well, that's well and good, but do the students agree with that? You know, does this actually fly with somebody who's trying to learn? So uh, this study came from that, that experience and that the purpose of it is to just find out, you know, what do students think about quality? What makes an online, quality online course from a student point of view? So um, you have, I don't remember numbers, so I had to have a cheat sheet here. We have um, 2,300 students from 31 institutions in 22 states. So anything that's in blue here had an institution who participated in the study. And as I mentioned, it's how do students perceive quality? What makes a quality online course from the student's point of view? Um, I also wanna mention that it's qualitative. Um, it's a snapshot, trends. We're just looking to see what people are thinking right now who are currently enrolled in online courses. And so what we're hoping that will do will shape our future studies and give us some more ideas of things we should look at quantitatively, more specifically in, in that area. So um, just to give you an idea of some of the demographics, uh, we had a, a wide range, 18 to over 65, wide age range. Uh, zero courses registered in their first course all the way to nine plus. Uh, seasoned online students, I'd say, more experienced online students, and then uh, 25 areas of study, so all the, all across the board on subject matter. And then some of the key points that we found, um, the majority of things are instructor related. And in the, in the open-ended question, what makes a quality online course, a lot of the things that came up were instructor related. Um, feedback, availability, how fast questions are answered, that kind of thing. So instructor related, but then also course design, how it's laid out, how the learning materials are, whether there are clear expectations in the course or not, are also very important to the students, which is all kind of what we're responsible for. So it is a balance between the instructor, facilitation and function of the course and the design and set up the course itself and the materials. Um, student interaction continues to be hit or miss. Uh, some people like it, some people don't, and that that um, echoes what the data, what research is saying about that right now. Um, feedback was mentioned so many times, I had to have its own item for that. So feedback is very important, not only that it's timely, but that it's relevant and that it's, it's helping students get along. So not just that the feedback got here quickly, but actually did it tell me something useful. And then some other things really quickly, just how a course is delivered, different kinds of support services that surround courses. Flexibility was mentioned quite a bit. Can I have my own due dates? <laughs> Can I turn things in late? <laughs> That was, that was interesting. Um, and so what we hope to do with this, 
the whole, I should mention, the whole presentation about the data itself is about an hour and a half, and we don't have that much time today, so I'm giving you just a snippet. <laughs> You're welcome. Just a snippet. <laughs> um, so what you have, so what we hope to do with this data, you know, it supports our existing practice. A lot of the data coming in is reinforcing the design decisions and the things we are creating. It reinforces our practice. It, it helps us bring into focus what we'd like to research more, maybe things that we could add that students would care about. And then also, you know, other things that come up that involve outside units beyond design, we'll be certain to share that data with those units as it's appropriate and with the faculty development. Um, students see, see the courses as more kind of holistically than we do. I know myself, you know, I'm very focused on my unit and what my job is, but from a student point of view, they tend to see it as a holistic system where going from one course to the other they kind of expect things to be in the same place and match, and I'm using the same process every time. They see it as a as cohesive learning experience. So I think what we can learn from that is that we all need to make sure we're helping each other um, get the, the best courses we can, the best experience we can. So I made a few notes there about maybe some differences between age groups or do um, new online students who are in there very first course or the first few courses have a different set of needs than the more experienced students. I'd be interested in that. Um, any technology preferences that they have. So um, if anyone here has questions that they're interested in, please share those with me because this is a continuing project. So anything related to quality, I'd love to chat with you about it. Then this is the the big logo screen. <laughs> I couldn't think about it. Yeah, I'll do it. But um, so what this is about is that um, that that study that I just described is only one example. Um, scholarships a big part of our team, and um, instructors are actually expected, or designers are expected to um, attend and present at different conferences. So we're not just you know, working in a vacuum on our own. We, we are required to go out and present and um, attend other conferences and keep up to date. So uh, as much as we, as we use the research that we do internally, we also share it with the larger community. And this is just an example of what those communities are. We, you might not be familiar with um, some of the places that we go as designers. And I'll see if I can keep up. <laughs> okay, um, there's some things that we do in Wisconsin. The first two with adult education and technology. <coughs> Bloomsburg is a local event that some of us go to. UCA is one where we have actually officers and involvement for management. ACT is the Design Geeks Conference. That's my favorite. <laughs> the uh, Hendrick Conference is a local event you might be familiar with. Clouds on the Horizon was another local event that we have here. The Distance Ed Conference in Madison is an international conference that's popular, as is we said. And Educause 
and then we'll see Sloan, our uh, big in our world, so we're always at the distance education parts, and then as well as international presence at Eden, which is the European distance education organization, Quality Matters. We're involved with them. We just had the keynote there last month. Um, USDLA is another national organization. Teaching and Learning with Technology, a local, local organization, and then Newton um, Higher Ed for innovation in teaching and learning. So we try to get around, <laughs> I'll just say that. And um, you know, like I said, keep that national and international presence. And then um, reinforcing that a lot of our management people are on boards or committees within these organizations for, for key, to keep up to date and help influence the trends that are happening right now. So, and then next, questions and comments, not just for me, but for the whole panel. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, kind of before we take questions, we thought it was important um, that we talk a little about, more about what we do and how we do it and what we think about than showing you a course, because it's really hard to get a feel of what it's like to be a student, because being a student is not much different than what we've experienced all our lives and that it's reading and it's writing and it's reflecting and it's answering, it's doing tests and, and some of that stuff doesn't, when you look at a course, it doesn't look um, real dynamic and stuff because you're not a student in the course, you're just looking at bits and pieces. So it's really hard to convey what it's like to be a student in a course through a presentation like this. So we wanted to really, really kind of focus on what we do, what we think about, um, research that we're involved in. Uh, one thing Penny uh, did mention is, is on the last slide, those are actually all conferences that, that we have presented at, uh, consistently presented at, actually. Um, and, and Penny's actually being modest when she said there was a keynote at the Quality Matters. She was the keynote at the Quality Matters. Um, <laughs> so, um, I want to open it up for questions. Um, Kathleen. Yeah, I just had a question for Penny. How did you? How are you collecting the data from these twenty-three hundred students? Survey Monkey. Survey Monkey. Yes, the monkey. Are you familiar with the monkey? <laughs> okay. So, and the way it worked is that the um, the participating institutions they have an individual survey set up for their institution, and so it's a collaborative IRB. So the participating institution gets a copy of their data specific to their students for their own research. And I take that data and put it into the hole for the 2300 so we can make the trends. So it was, we tried to make it win-win for both instead because it's a lot to ask of people to share their students with us. Right. So we tried to right. make it. Are you official. providing those institutions with feedback then if they're participating? Are you giving them research, are you giving them 31 institutions, are you giving them data then? Yeah, they'll get a copy of the cumulative data when it's ready. <laughs> I can't wait to see that white paper. Wes, <laughs> kind of a two part question. Okay. <laughs> With uh, Blackboard buying Angel, you perceive or project changes down the road and then kind of second part of that is a, I understand there's a major initiative within the university to explore Drupal 
well as a content management system? Well, to answer the first question uh, in terms of, of what's happening with learning management systems at the university, um, there's been several committees put together to look at that uh, ongoing now for over a year. Um, Lynn and I were on the, the pedagogical committee, there was, uh, Jamie was on the technology committee, and there was an administrative committee. Um, spent a lot of time looking at alternatives that are out there, uh, Blackboard being one of them, uh, Moodle being one, Desire to Learn, and Sakai. And where the, where the group is now is um, we've come down to where we want to pilot uh, two of the systems, one Desire to Learn and Moodle, this fall. So there's a handful, a handful, a handful being 30 to 40 um, <laughs> courses, not necessarily World Campus courses, but on blended courses, courses in residence um, that are going to pilot these. And at the end of that, we're going to have a recommendation. But that recommendation, um, Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is August 2011 is where we are now? Yes is when we're hopefully going to be able to make a final recommendation of which way we're going to go. Um, because we, the university owns the source code for ANGEL, we can keep ANGEL up and running for, for a number of years still. So it's going to be a long migration period. The idea is that we really um, want to find a system that meets the needs for both resident instruction and for the world campus and, and really online learning. So the university has taken a, a, an approach that we want to be really thorough, not rush through it. So I can't tell you at the moment where we're going to end up. Um, the second part in terms, there are um, a, few uh, a few academic units on campus using Drupal as the way that we use Evolution uh, as a content management system. It's, um, not to say one's better than the other, personal choice depending on what you want systems to do. Uh, I think the, the major uh, Drupal installation is actually kind of being managed and, and um, kind of maintained by arts and architecture at the moment and other folks are start, have, have decided they wanted to use it or try to, or, or try to use it, but how big that's going to get, it's, it's the problem with, well I won't say it's a problem, but at some point, if it becomes broader, the university would have to step in and decide if this is a, a production level system that is going to have the 24-7 support and everything else behind it, which I don't believe it has at the moment. So I don't know if that answers. Bill. How do you keep up with what's going on with our competition? I, I, I know that you know many of our you know, fellow not-for-profit universities seem to be pretty good about information sharing. But some of our for-profit competition, they tend to attend these conferences, but not necessarily share a lot of information. And they're also the ones with the big honking budgets and you know the resources to, to to kind of do a lot of testing and learning. So how how do we do we kind of know where we sit in that continuum? How advanced are we, and what are some of our bigger competitors doing? Well, we we do a lot of benchmarking. Um, with, with a lot of the nonprofits uh, because they're more open to sharing. <laughs> um, so we'll talk a lot, uh, University of uh, Nebraska at Lincoln, we do a lot of uh, benchmarking with uh, UMUC, we, we keep in touch with them. Um, last year, Lynn and I actually spent two, three days um, over at the Open University of the UK to understand what they were doing. 
And, and even at going to the Eden Conference and others, we get the feel, we all kind of have the same questions of, of what are we, you know, what about technologies and what are we doing? And even though people are using different learning management systems and they may be managing their content, the, the, the overarching questions about how to best meet the pedagogical needs of the students and whether we should integrate certain courses, not integrate certain courses, those are kind of common across everybody. Now, the hard part with the not with the for-profits is trying to see through a lot of the, the marketing and the smoke and mirrors in terms of what's actually happening within those systems. Um, I know you, I don't know how many, I was gonna say years ago, maybe five years ago, you know, Phoenix was very much a, uh, a, a cookie-cutter approach where they were still mailing all of the print packet, the whole packet out, and basically the interaction was strictly a discussion board was, was what the online course was. So there wasn't a lot of high-end stuff there. Now, they, they've obviously changed since then, but because of the volume of students that they deal with, they have a, they're probably not a lot able to be as flexible as maybe we can in some of our designs and stuff and the way that they approach it. But it's hard to say because if you can't, unless you're willing to sign up as a student, <laughs> it's really hard to get in and, and see what that looks like. Um, and if, even if you make a call to them, you, you will endure two years of follow-up calls <laughs> of trying to get you into a course. <laughs> so, um, I, I you know, I don't know how we, we really take a look at some of those environments. Same with Capella and some of the others. It's, it's hard to get an inside look into what they're doing. So it's probably not an adequate answer, but I think through the, through the conferences, we get a lot, of, a, a lot of input from people and talk to designers about what they're doing. Um, it's interesting in the design community is everybody's very, very sharing because we're all trying to do the same thing and, and reach the same goal, so. Um, Kathleen. I had another question. Um, I'm actually uh, in the middle of a doctorate program in higher ed, and I thought I was taking a world campus course this summer, but I don't. I didn't see it on your list. I'm taking um, for my electives a, a certificate um, in institutional research. So, how many of the courses are not our course? I mean, as a percentage, would you say? Because I thought I was taking a world campus course, and I don't think it is. I think right. it's the College of Education is. Um, it's hard to say. We have, um, this summer we had 600 sections running. And I want to estimate probably at least 400 of those were, were sections that we were responsible for. Now that doesn't break down necessarily easily into actual courses. Um, and Kathy, maybe you can help me here. I want to say there's at least 100 courses now that we have that are designed and developed by our academic partners. In that, in that range, and we have about 200, 250 that we keep up and running. Um, so there are, there are more, and, and one of the things is, is, one of the things that Penny mentioned in her research is how do, we, how do we work together to, so the students have a consistent experience across the courses, because what your experience is probably very different than what you may experience in a world campus course, because that particular group of courses, the higher ed, courses are designed, um, actually are handled by the instructional designer in the ag department. So, Interesting. yeah, and I have, I don't know if that's completely an angel, I, we haven't, yeah, it is an angel. Yeah, we haven't, we don't. But I wouldn't know it wasn't a world campus course. Right. I only know because I didn't see it on your list. 
And that's one of the issues we have with the students is, and we keep trying to hammer home is, you know, the students really don't care who designs the course and develops the course. To them, it's a world campus course, and and there should be, they should have some sense that it's going to behave the same or at least closely. And that's why it is important that everybody use the same um, learning management system at least, so that at least there is some level of consistency in the course. Um, Lehigh, any any questions from? From your group there? All right. Do we have, um, I know um, we had a couple other uh, locations that have joined us. Are there any, any questions from the other locations? All right. Uh, Michelle. Um, how do you, when you work with the um, instructors and you guys work through all the courses and design the course and now you're finished, does somebody go through that course and kind of bless that course and say, yes, now this meets the university's requirements? And I mean, we get that from the front line a lot. We, we get that, you know, like, how do I know that this is a good quality course and it some, somewhat mirrors, you know, an, um, an in-classroom experience and things like that, so. Well, it's actually a two-step process. One is after a brand new course is designed and developed, is it's, it's sent back, it's opened up to the academic unit to review as a sign-off, because it's really them, the department, that's saying, yes, this meets our standards and what we want this course to, um, to convey to the students. But also from a, a practical point of view, Kathy's team on the QA team goes through that course as if they were students to see if everything's working and if the navigation makes sense. And a lot of times we'll find things that, that because the designers are so close to it when we're, when we're designing it, we may not see that they see and then send back to the designers that say, this is really unclear, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Okay. So um, the QA process is fairly new to us, but the, the what we put in place is every course is to go through a complete QA check once every two years. And but then every course each semester goes through a what we call a level one check to make sure that key things we know that can cause us problems are are operating correctly and are there in terms of the syllabus, the dates in the syllabus match up with the content. If there's exams, we know if there's anything wrong with exams that will create huge huge issues for not just us, but everyone. Um, what's in uh, PACS is correct, so the students know that the materials are correct. So every course has that level of review each semester to make sure that it's working properly. So uh, it's kind of a two-step process in terms of the QA checks that go on and, and the sign-off of the course. Now, I have to admit, not every course gets the, probably the level of review that we'd like at the academic unit. Some, it depends whether it's an undergraduate or graduate course. Um, just because of the dynamics of graduate courses and faculty, um, it's probably not likely that a department head's going to step in and say to another faculty at the graduate level that their course is not up to snuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, but again, the faculty are very, very concerned about what their courses look like and how they represent them because they'll hear, they're going to be the first to hear from the students if things are not going well. So they're, they're very attuned to what, what the end product looks like. Well, from a prospect standpoint, when we try to sell these programs, they look at those syllabuses very heavily. And the more that you can put in those syllabuses, the more you're going to 
they, they just can't get a sense of what they're going to do in these, like, what do I do, you know, do I read, do I, you know what I mean? So the more right. you can put in those syllabuses, because that's what we drive them to, the, the easier it is maybe for us to sell. So just sort of like a, a sidebar there. A comment like that came through in, the, in my research, and that uh, one student commented, actually more than one, that they'd like the courses just to be open, so they can go in and see all the activities, how hard they are, you know, how much time would it take away from the family mm -hmm. if they were to take that course? Mm -hmm. They want to see everything and then pick one. Especially the graduate levels. Yeah. Especially the graduate levels. Which I don't know. I don't want to panic anybody. <laughs> I, don't, like, I, I don't know if that's possible, but a student did mention uh -huh. exactly what you're saying. Yeah, we, do, we get that a lot. That's I, was say, I can put Cheryl on the hot seat here to talk, to talk about the university's initiative a little about we're trying to get to a place to where an access account will have different levels of access so that we can pop, hopefully in the future be able to open up the course to prospective students or pieces of the course without them officially being enrolled and stuff. I don't share if you wanted to say anything about where that's at. Yeah, that, that project's called the Identity and Access Management Project. And it's something that the university has undertaken, um, not just from the student perspective, but also from faculty and staff. And it really revolves around um, the initial question, I think, that you had on your slide. Uh, how do I know the student is the student? How do I know this person I'm dealing with is the same person that I interacted with the first time? And as you go through the life cycle of being a student or in fact being a staff or a faculty member, uh, they know different things about you at different points. So perhaps for like a non-credit class, we, we might just take that student at their face value. They've given us an email address, they've told us what their address is, and they might be a certain level of assurance. And we're able to give them some service at that level of assurance. But if you start to talk about taking a class at Penn State or becoming you know, a little bit different type of student and interjecting further into the life cycle, we might have to know a little bit more about you. But what that also means is that as we get to know these different levels about people, we can start to take that information and go back to some of our systems that we have that support us and start to utilize that information. Because right now, the only information we have about you is your you know, Penn State Access account and the fact that you're able to use your, your user ID and password to get into systems. So what Rick mentioned was you know, there's a possibility that we can update our learning management system once we get these different levels of assurance about identity and say, okay, well, you might only be an identity level one, um, but we can let you see the course syllabus, say, an angel um, at that level of identity because you've given us some information about who you are, you're interested in us. But if you're a student, well, you know, you're, we're gonna have to know a little bit more about you. So that's really what the Identity and Access Management Project is all about, is knowing, knowing people and knowing enough about them to let them have an access to a service. Um, any other questions? I'm watching our time and we're, we're at the end. Well, thank you all very much for attending. Uh,